Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at the establishment of the Kalmar Union in June 1397, the various hotshots who had gathered to witness the coronation of Eric of Pomerania as King of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, issued the so-called Letter of Union, declaring that from that day onward, the three Scandinavian kingdoms would be united and ruled by the same king. The three countries would still be governed by their own laws and customs, but the king would be responsible for foreign policy. There was just one minor issue. The Letter of Union is written on paper, with no properly attached seals, making it look more like a draft than a finished legally binding document according to medieval diplomatic protocol. The argument about what the Scandinavian aristocrats gathered in Kalmar in the summer of 1397 actually agreed to has been raging for over 600 years by now. But the fact remains that the Kalmar Union did come into being, and Eric was its king. That did not, however, mean that he had any say in the way the three kingdoms were actually governed. The business of running the union was left to his great-aunt and foster-mother, Margaret. Only when she died of the plague in 1412 did Eric actually step out of her shadow and take the reins himself. Today, we'll put his governing skills to the test. Episode 59, A Brewing Storm. As I've mentioned before, Eric wasn't chosen to be king for his excellent governing qualities, but rather because the choice of him enabled Margaret to stay in power. Margaret was a formidable leader and she governed the three Scandinavian kingdoms skillfully, making the Kalmar Union happen and pushing back the Hanseatic League. The one thing she didn't really do was make sure that her successor would do an equally stellar job. And that was a pretty big deal in medieval Scandinavia, where no government was stronger or better than the person with the top job. And still, once Eric got to be king for real, when Margaret died, he didn't do such a bad job. At least he had good intentions, trying to do what was needed to strengthen the union. Unfortunately, some of his decisions didn't have the desired effect. Some of these decisions were connected to the seemingly endless war in Schleswig. He needed money for the war, and so he introduced new taxes, and raised existing ones. We've covered this and how unpopular it was in previous episodes. For instance, the sound dues, the toll you had to pay if you passed in or out of the Baltic Sea, were devastating for the Swedish economy. It's true that the Swedes themselves didn't have to pay it, but they still suffered indirectly, because the Hanseatic League was so annoyed by it that they decided to punish Eric by boycotting all of his kingdoms, including Sweden. The value of the currency fell, and vital exports, such as that of butter and iron, suffered. The latter will be especially important a little later on in this episode. What made the Swedes even more miffed was that Eric was obsessing over Schleswig and the threat from Germany. And when he did so, he was more or less ignoring Sweden's number one foreign policy concern, the threat from, e from the East, from Russia and the Teutonic Order in the Baltics. They threatened Sweden, and Sweden had already fought wars against the Russians over where the border between Finland and Russia should go. Erik not only ignored this and focused on Schleswig, worse yet, he forced the Swedes to do the same. In accordance with the Letter of Union, they sent troops and ships to the war in Schleswig because they were obliged to. But they didn't like it. 
It didn't help that King Eric so obviously preferred Denmark. As long as Margaret was alive, he and his wife, Queen Philippa, lived in Kalmar. But once Margaret died, the couple relocated to Denmark, and Eric's visits north of the border became increasingly rare. As I mentioned last time, we have no record of him ever setting foot in Norway again after 1412. In a way, it made sense that Eric focused on Denmark, since over half of his subjects and the richest bits of the Union were all in that comparatively small kingdom. But it wasn't people-savvy, that's for sure. And as if it wasn't bad enough that he never visited Sweden or Norway, he insisted on placing foreigners in positions of power in these two other kingdoms. Danes and Germans now commanded the most important castles in Sweden, and Swedish aristocrats felt that they had been robbed of the chance to lord it over the unwashed masses in their own country. These foreign governors were unpopular among the peasants as well, not least because Eric demanded that they get him taxes in cash, not produce, as had been common in the past. This was extra difficult for Swedes, because Sweden's economy wasn't as developed yet, and money was less common there than it was in Denmark. As I mentioned last time, the reason Eric did this wasn't to alienate the Swedish nobility, but to decrease the risk of an uprising in Sweden that would threaten his rule there. Commanders of castles were very powerful people, and the king wanted men without local connections and instead directly dependent on him to control these strong points. That was smart power politics, but again, not people savvy. Still, things were more or less fine for many years. Some have connected it to the positive influence of Queen Philippa. As I mentioned before, she was not only well-connected, but also a capable political leader and had a good head on her shoulders. After the fact, it has been said that she gave King Eric good advice and calmed him down when he got angry, helping him to think more clearly. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is true that the relations between King Eric and his Swedish subjects started to get really strained shortly after the Queen died. In many ways, Queen Philippa had a closer relationship with Sweden than her husband did. Her court was led by the granddaughter of St. Bridget, who herself was the daughter of St. Bridget's daughter, who had been the chief lady-in-waiting to Philippa's mother-in-law, Margaret. Even after the royal couple left Kalmar to settle in Denmark, Philippa frequently travelled north. Her favourite place to stay in Sweden was Vastena Abbey, founded by St. Bridget, of course, and she donated large sums of money to that institution, as did other members of the royal family and aristocrats from all over the three kingdoms in the Union. On her visits to Sweden, Philippa even acted as Eric's representative and was the country's de facto regent for the best part of the 1420s, when the king often gave her power of attorney to act on his behalf in Sweden. So when Eric needed the support of the Swedes to drum up the money needed to wage his war in Schleswig, he didn't go himself. Instead he sent his wife, possibly because he knew that she had a better shot at convincing the Swedes to agree to fund the war. And even though the representatives who gathered in Vastena to meet their queen were less than enthusiastic, they still agreed to support Eric's effort to capture Schleswig by pitching in. The following year, when the war continued to go badly and Eric needed even more money, he once again sent Philippa to convince the Swedes to come to his aid. She managed to secure their cooperation and additional cash, also the second time, even though the enthusiasm for the war was even weaker now than it had been the year before. In 1429, Philippa went to Sweden yet again, even though she really wasn't in any condition to do so. She was finally pregnant. So far the royal marriage had been childless, and the queen wasn't young anymore. 
She probably should have stayed at home, taking care of herself. But Eric desperately needed her to talk to the Swedes. He needed her to convince them to help him out of war-related money trouble yet again. So she went. Just like before, she went to Vastena Abbey. But there, the queen fell ill. And soon after, she gave birth to a stillborn son. Her health never recovered, and on January 5, 1430, she passed away, 35 years old. Her body was never brought back to Denmark, and instead she was buried in the church at Vastena. When Philippa died, King Eric's best advocate in Sweden was gone, and he could really have used one at this point. The Swedes were not happy with the king and his policies, and it wasn't just the upper echelons of Swedish society that were unhappy with the King Eric because he had robbed them of career opportunities. The peasants had also been unhappy for a long time with the ever-increasing taxes and the bad economy. As if it wasn't enough that Eric was annoying the aristocracy and the peasantry, he was also testing the patience of the church in Sweden. Then, the election of the new Archbishop of Uppsala in 1432 dialed the conflict level up from annoyance to crisis. It wasn't the first time the appointment of an archbishop had become a source of discord between the crown and the church. In theory, the church would pick their own bishops, but bishops were powerful people, too powerful to let just anyone get the job. So when they were strong enough, monarchs had a tendency to try and impose their preferred candidates on the church. This happened all over Europe, not only in Scandinavia. Margaret had also done it, but perhaps with slightly more finesse than Eric was capable of mustering. In 1408, Margaret had made sure a young nephew of her close ally, the Bishop of Roskilde, had been made Archbishop of Uppsala. Even though Margaret had the habit of enforcing her elections of bishops, she usually picked candidates that the church could work with. But this guy had been an exception. The new archbishop was a learned man, sure, but wholly unsuited for the job on moral grounds. Accusations of corruptions and depravity soon abounded, and in 1417 a formal process to get rid of him started. In 1422, the Pope himself conceded that this particular cleric had made himself impossible as Archbishop of Uppsala and removed him from his high office. But the church looks out for its own, and the ex-archbishop wasn't thrown out on the street. Instead, he was given a new, more out-of-the-way bishopric at Skolholt in southwestern Iceland. You'd think that this kind of thing would get you to question your life choices and re-examine your lifestyle. But apparently, the deposed ex-archbishop didn't think that he was in need of any soul-searching. And instead, he kept up his depraved lifestyle in his new posting. Unfortunately for him... The Icelanders were more direct than the people of Uppsala, and they didn't waste any time on legal proceedings. Instead, they decided to remove their new bishop themselves. When they came for him, he took refuge in the cathedral of Skalholt, where he doled himself up, putting on all the finery investments of his office, trying to cut as impressive a figure as possible. But it didn't impress or slow down the irate locals who broke into the sanctuary, ripped the clothes off the bishop, stuffed him in a sack and drowned him in a nearby river. King Eric continued his foster mother's habit of forcing his candidates as bishops on the church, even though he never really got it as spectacularly wrong as Margaret's last appointment to the see in Uppsala. But when a new archbishop of Sweden was to be elected in 1432, the cathedral chapter didn't want to play this game anymore. They elected the dean of the cathedral, 
a priest called Olaf Larsson, archbishop. Olaf was then immediately sent off to Rome to receive the Pope's confirmation of his new status. The fact that Olaf didn't stop by in Denmark to see the king, and that the cathedral chapter delayed sending a report about the election to Eric for as long as they possibly could, all indicate that they knew King Eric would object, and they wanted to give Archbishop Olaf as much of a head start as they possibly could. If the king would manage to get to the Pope and bribe him before the official recognition of Olaf, the king could undo the election and force one of his own candidates on Uppsala yet again. But if the Pope officially recognized Olaf as archbishop, the king could do nothing. So now the race for Rome was on. When the king eventually did learn about the elevation of Olaf Larsson, he went through the roof. If Queen Philippa still had been alive, she might have managed to calm him down, and not escalate the conflict further. But she wasn't around anymore, so the king could give free range to his rage. In Eric's mind, this wasn't just an affront to his personal honour, it also undermined royal power. Monarchs had hand-picked bishops in Scandinavia for generations. In the king's mind, the church had no business electing its own leaders. How dared they? How very dared they? Eric also claimed that since the archbishop was a member of the Council of the Realm, he couldn't be a person who undermined the majesty of the king, as Olaf did, just by not having been elected by the king. Eric didn't care that Olaf Larsson had been elected. Instead, he promoted the Danish-born bishop of Bergen to Archbishop of Uppsala. The king's choice of archbishop then went to Uppsala and claimed his new office by military force. Must have been awkward. But not for long, because he died already on New Year's 1434. But that didn't end the conflict between King Eric and the church in Sweden, because Eric just sent another sycophantic cleric, this time a Norwegian priest called Thorolf Olafsson, to be Archbishop of Uppsala, no matter what the people in Uppsala thought about it. They didn't like it, of course, and they had no intention of accepting this new Archbishop either. They wanted Olaf Larsson, and they were determined to get him. All the while, Olaf himself had to stay in exile in Rome, even though he was the legally elected Archbishop, it's unclear what King Eric would have done to him if he had returned to Sweden, but Olaf wasn't willing to take the risk. In the spring of 1434, a few months after Thoralf had been installed as archbishop, backed by the military might of the king, the cathedral chapter at Uppsala sent word to Olaf, urging him to return to Sweden accompanied by an army. They claimed they were in danger, that the king was planning on attacking them. In their message to Olaf, the church officials in Uppsala claimed several Swedish nobles would join in the rightful archbishop's fight against the wicked king and that they would rally popular support, starting a general uprising to ensure victory against Eric of Pomerania. The conflict over who should be archbishop of Uppsala may seem unrelated from the peasants' complaints about tax burdens, but it isn't. They're connected by one thing, King Eric and his style of governing. He was high-handed and ignored local interests and opinions. The king insisted on making his picks of governors and bishops come hell or high water. And now the water was rising. But the first acts of open rebellion against King Eric didn't come from the cathedral in Uppsala, but rather 
from the mining villages in Bergslagen, a highland region further inland to the west. Even though the mining industry was still in its infancy in the 15th century, the miners were already of some importance in a Sweden where the economy wasn't particularly developed. The miners were usually farmers who owned their mines collectively and ran them as a side business. The owners themselves would often be the ones who mined the ore and processed the metal. So why did they start a rebellion? Some have said that it was the Hansa blockade of all of King Eric's kingdoms that had led to financial hardships for them, and they could no longer export their metal, which they were accustomed to doing with the help of the Hanseatic merchants. But others have pointed out that the timing was a little off. The blockade happened a few years before the rebellion. In fact, by the time the miners in Bergslagen rose in revolt, the blockade had been lifted years ago. Still, the general financial situation was bad in Sweden, and the miners suffered just like everybody else. And when the financial situation was bad, the crown was in the habit of raising the taxes in order to bring in the same amount of money as it had in previous years. This, of course, meant that the taxpayers got to keep even less of their hard-earned income, suffering both from a weaker economy and higher taxes. This was obviously not greeted with enthusiasm, but when the taxes went up, the peasantry usually directed their anger at the taxman, not the king who had set the tax rate. If the taxman was a foreigner, that only tended to exacerbate the situation. And that was exactly what was going on in Sweden. King Eric had placed all these Danes, Germans and other foreigners as governors and tax collectors in Sweden, and now they became the target for the population's increasing resentment. It didn't help that Sweden's farmers and peasants also had a stronger political situation with more rights than German and even Danish peasants did. So when German officials treated the Swedish locals like their colleagues treated German peasants in Germany, where abuse and corruption were widespread and well-documented, that only added fuel to the fire. The Engelbrecht Chronicle, admittedly a piece of propaganda written after the fact justifying the uprising, but still, spends a lot of ink on describing how the Swedish peasantry suffered under the yoke of foreign governors and tax collectors. In the first years of the 1430s, the miners in Bergslagen had finally had enough. But they weren't barbarians. They hadn't lost faith in the system or in the king. Instead, they wanted to use the existing channels at their disposal to improve their situation. They appointed a member of the lower nobility called Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson, who also belonged to the mining community in Nürburg as their spokesperson. Engelbrecht was tasked with bringing their complaints to King Erik. Engelbrecht went to the king in 1431 or 1432 or possibly twice. The miners' main demand was for the king to remove the Danish governor Jens Eriksson, aka the peasant tormentor, from the governorship of Westeros. And just to clarify, that's Vesteros with a V, not a W. And if you're listening to this episode sometime in the future, when Game of Thrones no longer is a thing, I apologize for the confusion. Just Google it. Anyway, Jens Eriksson would apparently torture peasants who wouldn't or couldn't pay their taxes. The complaints contained reports of how Jens had strung men up and set fires under them to make them inhale smoke. He had also forced women to draw carriages until some even gave premature birth to stillborn children. King Eric acknowledged these complaints and asked the Swedish Council of the Realm to weigh in. The council members found the complaints to be valid and reported back to the king, but that didn't help. 
Jens Eriksson got to keep his job. Possibly because he belonged to a Danish noble family, and his wife came from one of the most important, prominent aristocratic families in Norway. She was also enormously wealthy, so King Erik would have made a lot of powerful enemies if he'd fired Jens Eriksson. That was it for the people of Bergslagen. In 1432, a group of irate peasants got together and marched against Vesteros to get rid of Jens Eriksson themselves. When they realized what was going to happen, the Swedish Council of the Realm reacted quickly though, stepping in and managing to convince the peasants to agree to negotiate instead. But the protracted negotiations didn't yield the result that the peasants wanted. Jens Eriksson still got to keep his job. So the following year, 1433, Bergslagen rose in revolt once again. When Jens Eriksson showed up demanding taxes that spring, no doubt with a smug grin on a feeling of invulnerability. The peasants, under the leadership of Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson, gathered and attacked the local castle, Borgarnes. They captured the castle, and then they once again marched on Westeros. At this point, the Council of the Realm realized a promise of negotiations wouldn't suffice, so they went ahead and fired Jens Eriksson. The king accepted their decision and appointed a new governor, the Pomeranian Count Hans von Eberstein. Even though he was a foreigner too, people accepted him and went home again. Crisis averted, or so it would seem. But not for long. In June 1434, the rebellion took off for real. We don't know why for sure. Traditionally, it's been claimed that the new governor was rumored to be even worse than the old one, and the economic situation was still bad in Bergslagen. There's a third, more conspiratorial explanation. You see, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson had German roots, and he worked in mining. The miners were dependent on the Hanseatic League, and especially on Lübeck, for the export of their output. So some have suggested that Engelbrecht acted on orders from Lübeck, trying to weaken King Erik, who was an enemy of the Hansa. But no proof of any contacts between Lübeck and Engelbrecht has been found, even though the theory remained popular, especially among those who were against the rebellion at the time. And there's actually an additional conspiracy theory explaining the rebellion. The violence broke out just a few months after the cathedral chapter in Uppsala had sent off their letter to Olaf Larsson in his exile, promising him a popular uprising in support of his cause. Could the rebellion in Bergslagen have been brought on by discreet prompting from the church hierarchy in Uppsala? It's a neat theory, but there is no hard evidence for this explanation either. Whatever the spark that ignited the gunpowder had been, the people once again rose up under Engelbrecht's leadership. That's a third time for those of you keeping score at home. This time, they burnt down the castle at Borgarnes on Midsummer's Day 1434. They then moved on to another castle in the area immediately afterward, showing that this time they meant business. They took that castle and burned it too, with ease, not least because its commander, a Venetian called Giovanni Franco, had escaped before the peasant force arrived. You may think that these provincial farmers and miners from a mountainous region of Sweden were surprisingly good at capturing castles. The reason was probably that some of them, at least some of their leaders, had learned about how to lay siege and storm castles from their participation in the unpopular war in Schleswig, where a lot of the action had been focused on exactly capturing fortresses. These initial successes led to more peasants, unhappy with King Eric's policies, or at least with his governors, joining the rebellion. Soon, 
the region of Vestmanland in central Sweden, also rose up. Engelbrecht's forces put the castle at Vesteros under siege, and it fell to the attackers. At this point, the first members of the Swedish aristocracy started to show interest in the uprising. Niels Gustafsson, the law speaker in Uppland, and a member of the Council of the Realm, joined the rebellion, lending it his credibility and legitimacy. His reward was command over Vesteros castle. Engelbrecht then went on to call a thing in Vesteros. Farmers and nobles came from all over the region and listened to Engelbrecht's passionate speech, asking them to take up arms. And they did so, enthusiastically. In his speech at the thing, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson no longer spoke about getting rid of this or that governor. Now he was talking about returning freedom to Sweden, possibly by getting rid of King Eric altogether. By now, what had been a local, or at least regional, rebellion had become a national uprising. Law speaker Nils Gustafsson's son, Erik Puke, who was managing his father's estates in Finland, took to the field to spread the rebellion in northern Sweden and in Finland. We'll have reason to return to Erik Puke later on. From Vesteros, Engelbrecht marched north to Uppland. When he heard that Engelbrecht was on his way, King Erik's archbishop, the Norwegian Thoralv, fled Uppsala. He took with him a cherished relic, the thumb of the martyred king, St. Eric, the guy who had led that first mythical crusade to Christianize Finland, who we met in episode 41. When they learned about the theft, the people were outraged. So when a storm hit the fleeing cleric, they gleefully said it was the saint's revenge. When Engelbrecht called another thing in Uppsala, the result was the same as in Vesteros. The attendees decided to join the uprising. At the same time, the rebellion was also spreading south of Lake Mälaren. The commander at Gripsalm Castle fled to Stockholm and the relative safety behind its walls. Nothing and no one seemed to be able to stand against the rebels. This was King Eric's worst nightmare come true, and it was all of his own making. Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson seemed unstoppable. By now, he led a force of some 40 to 50,000 men. He marched with them from Uppsala southward to Stockholm in July 1434. So far, they had met very little active resistance, neither from the castles or from the nobility who, in theory, were supposed to defend the king and his rule in the land. If anything, the nobles had joined the uprising. But Stockholm proved to be too tough a nut to crack. So instead, Engelbrecht made a deal with the governor of the castle after he'd realized that he couldn't take the city by storm. The deal was a truce until November, St. Martin's Day to be precise. After that day, they'd resume hostilities if they wanted to. By striking this deal, Engelbrecht and his force were free to march on and target weaker and less well-defended castles instead, without running the risk of being attacked in the back from Stockholm. And so they did. Engelbrecht spent the summer marching to and fro in southern central Sweden, convincing people to join the uprising and capturing cities, towns and castles. Engelbrecht was in Ostrogothia, laying siege to yet another castle, when he learned about the meeting of nobles, including three bishops, being convened at Vastena, where St. Bridget's Abbey was located, on August 16th. Engelbrecht hadn't been invited, but he didn't care. He crashed the meeting with the intention of convincing the assembled aristocrats to join him and his uprising. But they hesitated. The king's men still held the south and the west of the country, and several of the strongest castles, like Stockholm, had resisted Engelbrecht's forces. 
there was clearly a limit to what Engelbrecht could achieve militarily, even though that wasn't immediately obvious as he was busy picking low-hanging fruit all over the country. And maybe they feared the social aspect of the uprising as well. Who knows where it would lead? Would it really be such a good thing if Engelbrecht triumphed? Who could guarantee that these peasants would be placated once King Eric was deposed? What was to stop them from turning on the Swedish nobles after they'd gotten rid of the hated king? Maybe they would demand a more thorough remodeling of society. But Engelbrecht was having none of it. He made sure his forces were surrounding the building, making a lot of noise. Menacing noise. He then threatened to drag the bishops out to the men outside and let them lynch the clerics if they didn't back the uprising. At that point, the 19 gathered grandees relented and signed a declaration where they renounced their fealty to King Eric. When the declaration, signed even by a few members of the Council of the Realm that had attended the Vastena meeting, became known, several more nobles decided to join the growing uprising as well. Engelbrecht moved on from Vastena, calling more things and attacking additional castles. Most of these strong points of royal power were taken, but not all. Kalmar itself was put under siege, but its defences held. In the fall of 1434, only a few intensive months after the first castle had been torched, pretty much all of Sweden was in revolt against King Eric. The rebels had even crossed the border into Denmark and taken most of the castles in Halland on the North Sea coast. Scania, also a Danish region, declared itself neutral for 12 weeks, meaning that if King Eric wanted to strike against the Swedish rebels, he couldn't do so by passing through Scania. And King Eric was preparing to strike. While the uprising had spread like wildfire through every region of Sweden, the king had been frantically gathering his forces. It had taken longer than he would have liked, but when the fall came around, Eric was finally ready to set sail for Sweden to go and put this Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson in his place. On November 1st, after having suffered through the choppy waters of the Baltic Sea in late fall, the Danish fleet could be seen from the walls of Stockholm. By then, only ten days remained of the truce between the city governor and Engelbrecht, and so the arrival of reinforcements was definitely a welcome development for the city's defenders. Still, ten days remained of the truce, and King Eric couldn't go on the offensive until after St. Martin's Day. All he could do in the meantime was just bide his time, counting the days until he would be allowed to attack. But by the time the truce ended, Engelbrecht had managed to gather a formidable force. Stockholm was completely surrounded from all sides by a force that was far greater than what the governor and the king had at their disposal. No one could be sure that they would win, and a battle would definitely have been bloody. No one wanted that, so instead the two sides decided to sit down and talk. The result was a renewed truce, this time until next fall. At the end of this new truce, the two sides were to meet in Stockholm yet again, and they would put their respective cases to a panel of judges, made up of twelve council members, four from each of the three kingdoms in the Union. The judgment would be based on Swedish law, which the rebels claimed the king had violated so grievously. During the truce, no more castles would be attacked. Only a few of them remained in the king's control anyway, but they were the strongest. Stockholm, Kalmar, Elfsborg, Borgholm, and a few more. King Eric may not have been able to crush the rebels on the battlefield, but as he was sailing back to Denmark, he wasn't too worried. He held strong castles, 
and he had intelligence reports saying that the rebel side wasn't as united as they would like to pretend. Also, the judges would be favoring him. Christer Nilsson Vasa, one of the Swedish council members who was supposed to sit on the panel of judges, was the king's ally, and Erik expected all the Danish and Norwegians to side with him. So he was fairly confident that he had at least nine of the twelve judges in his pocket. But Engelbrecht didn't plan to just sit around working on the case he would put to the judges next year. He had every intention to use this truce to strengthen his position, making it impossible for the king to win, whatever the judges would say. To that end, a meeting was called in the town of Arboga, 20 days after Christmas, in January 1435, and at that meeting, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson was proclaimed to be captain of the Swedish realm. That meant he was now the supreme commander of all military forces in Sweden. Regional commanders for regions where the king still held castles were also appointed. These regional commanders were all members of prominent noble families, signifying a subtle but important shift of power within the uprising. It had started as a rising among the oppressed peasants, but now the traditional elites were moving in. No peasants or miners were given high positions. There would be no social revolution here, thank you very much. At Arboga, it was also decided to expand the Council of the Realm, with almost two dozen new members from the higher and lower nobility. This was a violation of the king's right to appoint members to the council, and it was obviously meant as a move to further undermine the king's power and influence. Engelbrecht was riding high. He was at the peak of his power and influence. The new captain of the realm was one of the new council members. He was determined to give the king a run for his money. And he was in an excellent position to do so. Tune in next time to learn how things turned out. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get a t-shirt, mug, tote bag, or any other item with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words, or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.